0: Market Call. This is Thursday. I am Dan Nathan. It is December 8th. Guy Nami will be back with us in a very quick moment here. We have a very special edition today. We have Liz Young of SoFi. You know her as LY from SoFi. She's going to be joining us here. She got a really fun uh, title to her weekly note that she posts. And I think it really has something to do with just tweaking Guy Nami a couple of weeks uh, before Christmas. Um, and then we also have a special guest from FactSet. It's Elizabeth uh, uh, Kastner. She is a CFA. She's a director of global funds research and Analytics at FactSet. She has been on the program with us before. We're going to have a healthy conversation um, about the ETF landscape, some of the changes that we have seen um, of late, and what we might see going forward. Just a quick, quick programming note guy adami danny moses and myself they're my co-hosts of on the tape podcast we are doing a special collaboration with our friends from the compound that would be downtown josh brown and michael batnick that's going to be december 16th at the nasdaq in new york city's times square it's going to be live it's going to be lit go to at market call m-r-k-t call or at on the tape pod we have a pinned tweet there you can figure out how to buy tickets all the tickets proceeds go to no kid hungry and we're going to be raising a lot of money from them if you can't make it and you want to support us you can also donate all right let's do this thing here i'm going to bring in liz ey from sofi liz how are you
1: Hi. Can you hear me? I hope my mic is You
0: working. can. I mean, listen, you know, yeah. Guy, You know, guy. when he gets back on here, you know what he's going to do. I'm, so, oh, I'm sorry. Of course. I'm sorry. I was just impaling just myself. Time. Oh, is that what he's doing? Guy, are you impaling yourself? <laughs> All
2: right, let's try. Can you hear me now?
0: Yeah, yeah we sir. can hear you now.
2: Well, you might notice I have a new backdrop. For some reason, my Apple computer didn't load downstairs, so I had to run upstairs. So I apologize. No worries. Ghost in the Machine, which was a great police album in 1981, I believe. Back to you, Dan.
0: All right. Fair enough. All right. We got a lot going on today. We have Elizabeth joining us pretty soon um, to talk about just ETFs and all things going on and the way she thinks about them over there at FactSet. Um, but Liz, we got to get to some stuff here. You know, like we, we've we had, uh, you know, if we just throw up a chart of the S&P 500 over the last week, we know that the market, at least the stock market's been in sell-off mode, which is interesting, really, since that little hotter than expected jobs number. You were on, on the tape uh, earlier this week with me. We were talking about it a little bit here. So, good news on the economic front bad news still for the stock market but it's interesting that yields have come in the you know the 10 years below three and a half percent here um you know the thing that sticks out to me guys I see a lot of green on my board, on my fact screens today as far as the stock market's concerned. But crude oil, which was up, Liz, I'd love to get your take on this, is kind of reversed here, and it's down. And, and crude uh, or energy stocks, which were you know doing pretty well, the large integrated, the XLE, the ETF that tracks them, is also down. Thoughts on what might be going on there? Because I think there was some enthusiasm about zero COVID rules being, I don't know, softened a little bit in China. Maybe that just increases demand for crude oil.
1: My thoughts on this are very simple, and I don't mean to sound smug about it, but what happens before a recession is that oil spikes. And then as a recession is approaching and we go into one, it falls. So I think it's very interesting and it's very notable that during a week where we have the speculation that China might actually relax its COVID policies and demand might come back, oil still fell. So that can't even save it. I think that a lot of the signals we're seeing right now, including the 10-year rallying, is classic recessionary signals. And we're getting to a point where CEOs are accepting the fact that it's more likely than not. The market is starting to accept the fact that it's more likely than not. But here's the thing, and I'm gonna start sounding optimistic because I think people are sick of me not sounding optimistic. Here's the thing, every time that we fail, to break out. Every time that we hit one of those resistance lines, we're going to talk about resistance today from my note. Every time we fail and go back down, that's another bear rally behind us. That doesn't go on forever. At some point, we do break through it. And remember, the market always sniffs it out before the economy. So even if we expect some kind of recession and maybe crude oil is giving us the foreshadowing of that, if we expect a recession, let's say first or second quarter of next year, the market bottoms before that.
2: Yeah, I agree with that. And listen, you both have been have done a great job with this, but I don't know if we can, Rafis or Jacob can pull up an OIH chart, but this is one that we talked about needing to get through 320 on the upside. Those were the highs we saw back in April, and we challenged it a few weeks ago. Now, here we are, mirrored, sort of mired in this 285 level. We peaked our head up earlier today, but giving mm-hmm. up the ghost, as Dan just said. You know, a classic double top in the short term, and this looks like it wants to go back to the 200 day moving average. Which probably comes in. Somewhere around two sixty or so. So to both your points, crude oil is telling a not so great story, not only about our economy, about the global economy. And again, ten yeah. year yields going below three and a half percent, which is something we've talked about seemingly for the last six months, is not particularly mm-hmm. good.
0: Yeah, you know, and, and I just think again, you know, like I, I think we would all agree that equities on a short-term basis were getting a little oversold, right? To, to Liz's point, every kind of rally was kind of uh, met with sellers here, and you know, but that the crude really sticks out to me today because the headlines should be a bit of a tailwind. If I look at the one-year chart of crude oil, you go back to that 52-week low in December. It's a foregone conclusion. I don't think these are great presses anymore on the short side, guy. You know that I detailed a, a short. short. USO trade not too long ago on market call. Uh, I did it through put spreads and the same thing in December um, in the XLE. I just took those off because, again, they've been nice little trades for me over the last few weeks or so. I just feel like we're getting to a point where at some point it's either going to react to positive news or it's not. But I'm going to look for a better entry point here because I think the sentiment is getting um, fairly consensus. All right. Here's one thing that will not be in consensus Guy, you know, Liz writes her note, and I know that she's thinking about (laughs) how best to serve SoFi clients, how to get the most intelligent analysis about markets, about everything. That's
2: second on her list. The first one on her (laughs) list is how is she going (laughs) to just tweak me? And I know because, you know, the feeding pajamas this time of year, and you're (laughs) drinking your brandy and you're like, how am I going to infuriate him this week? And I think you've succeeded yet again.
1: You've got my number, though. You said brandy instead of whiskey. That's such a Wisconsin (laughs) thing. We drink brandy old fashions, not whiskey old fashions. Of course you do. And, Guy, on this, whatever machine you're on, you probably can't see my background, but there's a Christmas tree. I see a little tree. That's a dormant tree. Yeah. (laughs) It's actually six feet tall. But anyway, yes, the note this week rocking around the resistance tree. Every time I think I'm out of ideas, I come up with something like this that I'm like, I'm still alive. So. This one. All right. I did this because this isn't necessarily new information to anybody. We've been talking about it ad nauseum, right? We hear about the 200-day moving average. We hear about resistance lines. But I did this because I bet there are people out there that actually wonder why we talk about some of these lines so much, where they come from, what they mean, and because I think we're in the process of watching the third failure here. So what I mean by that is the failure of getting above those resistance lines. Now, if you look at this first one, this is the 200-day moving average and the 50-day moving average. We pointed out the death cross on there that happened back in March. And what that is, is the 50-day moving below the 200-day. Now, there's a belief that when that happens, the 200-day moving average then becomes the resistance line. And if you can you can see what's happened throughout the year, that has, in fact, held. In this most recent rally, we got as close as we've ever gotten, we blew a little bit above that 200-day moving average and a lot of people declared victory. That was it. That's the beginning of a new bull. But then we very quickly reversed. So I think that this, if this is the third failure, I think it's probably the last failure to get above that resistance line. The trouble here is that none of us know how long we stay below Mm -hmm. it. So it's taken two months to get up to it. Last time, it took two months to go back down and hit a new bottom. It could be two months, three months. This one could be a little bit more prolonged. But here's what I will say. Being in this place of purgatory, of wondering, will we have a recession? Will we not have a recession? Will we bottom again in the market is far worse than just doing it, getting it over with and moving on. So I actually hope that. We come down sooner rather than later, and we can confirm something like an economic recession or like economic data actually falling apart at some point in the next couple months, because then we move on, we reset the cycle, we start again.
2: I love that. Rocking around the resistance. It's actually brilliant. I like the way you did end apostrophe. Brenda Lee would be happy for you (laughs) Christmas carolers out there. And I'll say this. What you're setting up for probably sometime next year, as we saw this Death Cross you know five or six months ago what's going to wind up happening again the way i see it playing out the market's going to flush the 200 days going to continue to go lower and then you're going to start to see this rally based predicated on something we probably can't identify right now but that 50 day if you look is starting to slope a little bit higher and at some point next year it's started instead of death crosses we're going to be talking about this golden cross and that's probably going to happen mm-hmm. i would think late spring early summer and that's coming to a theater near you. And that's going to be extraordinarily good for the back half of next year, I think, EY.
1: Yeah, and I just, absolutely pull, agree.
0: Yep. Yeah, let's just pull up a one-year chart here. We drew some lines. And, and to your point, you know, Liz, the resistance levels that you're talking about, the downtrend that's been in place since January, the 200-day moving average. You know, it's interesting, though, that we also have this very steep uptrend. And we just broke below it yesterday. And that former support also becomes resistance near term. So let's see how the market bounces over the next couple of days and if it can get back above that uptrend and then retest the 200-day and the downtrend. Um, I want to pull up a, a, a tweet that I saw from a guy named Andrew Thrasher And I thought this was kind of interesting because, you know, you were talking about resistance. Andy Thrasher is talking about long-term support. He said one difference so far between this downtrend and 01 and 08 is we have yet to see a major break below the 200-week moving average, which has been excellent support on many prior market dips. I think that's really interesting. It's like we can sit here and look at a short-term chart and we can talk about uh, support and resistance levels. But here's one that is telling a different story on a much longer-term basis. Thoughts, Liz, when you see some data like this? Because again, this can help kind of formulate that narrative. We're just talking about how do we find a bottom here? Well, one way would be capitulation through this long-term support. Yeah. Thoughts there?
1: Yep, yeah, I think that's true. I think if we do blow through that support level, I don't think it would happen dramatically But if we blow through it, and now this bear market has been going on for a while. It feels much longer than it actually is. And in reality, if you look over history, this isn't that long as compared to other bear markets. But if it lasts another quarter or so, and we do have another flush, we probably get down below that 200-week moving average. And then, you know what? It'd be nice if that was it. That might end up being it. That might be all we need. And that would cause capitulation. I think, though, at the same time, it's all about the timing of when everything else lines up, if we flush through this and it's coming at a time when the jobs market actually starts to fall apart, that is the bottom signal for me. And we're never going to call it on a certain day. I'm never going to try to do that even on a certain week, but once we start to do that and if it lines up with economic data happening and we bust through something like this, that's when I'll be on here talking about a buy signal.
0: So guy, here's a quick one um, for you. Uh, You know, Friday, we had that jobs data, Um, you know, the VIX on Thursday closed below 20. And we had been talking about this kind of range in the VIX. Liz, you've been talking about it with us too. We've had this uptrend, um, you know, over the course uh, from the lows, you know, at the start of the year, and then we've had this downtrend. It's been making this little pennant formation close below the lower bands, but then it's kind of been moving up, especially since the stock market's been selling off over the last couple of days. What's really interesting to me is that we have the S&P up about 70 BIPs almost, the NASDAQ's up 1%. And the VIX is basically flat to up a little bit. So, Guy, what is that telling you in front of tomorrow's PPI data?
2: I think people are square. This is my sense of what's happening today. I think people that probably came in short are trying to square, get ahead of the number. A lot of people think it's going to come in softer than expected. A VIX down here suggests that we're probably closer to the short-term top in the market than the bottom. We've talked about that for a while. So all things are lining up. People are getting ready. I will tell you, again, I don't think it's going to be a soft number. But if you get a soft number where people champion it, that VIX is probably going to have a 17 and a half handle. And you'll probably see another one of these 100-point moves in the S&P 500. The dollar will collapse. and so It'll probably be extraordinarily supportive of commodities. I think uh, yields will continue to go lower. I mean, it's all sort of playing out that way over the last week or so. But a yeah. hotter number, a lot of these things are going to reverse. The S&P is going to collapse, I think. Yields will probably go back to three, six in the 10 year. And I think you'll see a renewed bid in this dollar. I mean, that's really the game right now. And you have to sort of pick a side or you can just sort of wait, see what it comes out and try to piggyback it. But I think that's sort of the calculus right
1: now. Do you think, though, Guy, if let's say it comes in softer and S&P rallies, yields come down, is that a temporary move? And then do we go back to this sort of accept the fact that a recession might be coming and the market yeah. has to square that?
2: So, so that's, see, that's the rub, right? Because although, you know, Doug Cass talks about the, the the folly of seasonality, but I think there's some truth to it. And I think it's, you know, the more we get into December here, you're going to have one of these levitations on a soft number into year yeah. end. But by the way, we saw yeah. the same thing happen last year. I don't think that signals that it's over by any stretch of imagination, but I think The subsequent rally on the back of it could probably last longer than I would have thought a couple weeks ago.
0: All right. We spent a lot of time on the macro here. You know, today after the close, there's some interesting companies that are reporting earnings. Um, Costco, we talked about it a little bit last week. Their same-store sales disappointing year over year. Um, They came out last week. Stock got hit kind of hard. They're going to report the full quarter results last night. It'll be interesting to see what they have to say if that diverges a little bit from the sentiment that we saw about same-store sales. But this is one that's really interesting to me. I'm sure Liz is all dolled up in the Lulu's uh, quite frequently. But, you know, So Lulu reports after the close tonight, and this is one, at first, you know, I was looking, big implied move in the options market. About 9%, a I believe. Oh, yeah, sorry. like in, in either direction, Guy. And, you know, the chart is kind of interesting to me. You know, if you back it out and you look at it on a multi-year basis, you know, we've had this huge rally of late. It's above its 200-day moving average. You can't say that about many stocks, especially consumer-related right now. But I see a technical formation that just doesn't look great. It looks like a head and shoulders. Thoughts, Guy, quickly on the fundamentals. And then, Liz, I'd love to get your take on what you think about consumer discretionary because we have a chart of the XLY also that tracks the space. And, again, we know that's heavy Amazon. It's heavy uh, Tesla and Home Depot. But, again, from a just a signaling or a directional standpoint, you know, consumer discretionary is really important. here. Guy, thoughts on Lulu first.
2: Not a cheap stock in this environment. The stock has bounced over the last couple of weeks. It's bounced into resistance. The technical formation is not great. 33 times next year's numbers. The number I think you're looking for, obviously inventory is always important with these companies, um, but it's comps. And I, I, the number's got to be north of 20% year over year in order for this stock to get, I think the next leg higher. I just don't think it's going to happen, which leads me to believe this this little uh, head and shoulders formation is going to hold up. And we're going to do a little bit of a back and fill here, Dan.
0: Yeah, well, I can see that. Liz, give me your sense. You look at this XOY and you look at it, it's kind of banging along the 52-week lows here. And again, we know that Tesla is really kind of weighted on it, weighed down. And, you know, Amazon had a big rally, you know, earlier in the summer, but it's come um, all the way back here and it had a big breakdown after its disappointing results and guidance. What's your thoughts on like consumer discretionary? You know, because this is a really important point. Gasoline at the pump is below where it was a year ago. So like, again, you know, like we've had, we've spent a year talking about how, you know, transitory and this and that or whatever. Well, you know, whatever your time frame is, it was kind of transitory because a lot of inflationary inputs that put pressure on consumers have come, they basically round tripped at a time where we're still seeing decent wage growth. Again, that was one of the reasons why we saw the market sell off after the jobs number in November.
1: Well, if you remember what was happening, though, as inflation was rising, we had this whack-a-mole effect, right? First, it was used cars and trucks. We talked about gas a lot. Every time that we thought something stopped being a problem, something new popped up. So yes, it's good that gas prices are lower, but there's still a lot of price inflation out there that consumers are dealing with. Uh, Also, side note, I, I am what they call a yogi, so I do wear Lulu quite often. Despite that, consumer discretionary I think I mentioned this last week on market call with you, Dan, mm-hmm. I used my final trade on CNBC last Thursday. I said, sell consumer discretionary. Whoa. I've never said sell before. Now I realize it's at low points right now, but I said sell because there's a couple different reasons. Number one, retail makes up 52% of that sector. Retail stocks don't usually do well in December. And if we've got a time right now where consumers are getting hit by inflation, there could be a chance that we have a holiday spending season that's a little disappointing. If it isn't disappointing, that means people likely overspend. They're not saving. We know that. We get into January, retail comes out and says, you know what, things aren't as good as we thought. So I don't love consumer discretionary here. The other thing is, it's still the second most expensive sector in the index. And this is a time, if the Fed is not going to cut rates anytime soon, and we're looking at a 2023 with a pause, but at a higher level, it's not a good time to be buying expensive stuff. So uh, I'm not optimistic about consumer discretionary right now, but that's a short-term statement. Again, if, if it comes to fruition that we have a big flush, it lines up with economic data falling apart, when I give that buy signal, when I say I'm starting to feel like a buyer discretionary will be on that list.
2: I love that she's a Yogi. i I've never heard that before. If you don't <laughs> see the little lemon, does that cause I'm, I'm sported as we speak, but you know, it's
0: undergarments. All I mean, right. It's right. right. t- okay. a little TMI there. All right. Real real <laughs> quickly, one last thing before um, before you leave us here. Let's talk about semis. Uh, tonight after the close, Broadcom, ticker AVGO, um, is going to report the options market is implying about a 5.5% move um, in either direction. And going back to your note, you know, we just will not be able to get that out of our head, rocking around the resistance tree here for a while. But you see this chart of the Broadcom banging up last week against that resistance resistance. It failed there. It's contending with its 200-day moving average. You know, guy, this is a fairly cheap stock. It's down 20% on the year. The SMH, the ETF that tracks the semiconductor space, it's down 30% on the year. We know that, you know, Taiwan Semi, NVIDIA, ASML, L there, some of the biggest holdings there. You got to go all the way down to number six to see um Broadcom. But you know, for mid-single digits earnings and sales growth expected next year, trading about 13 times, not out of control here. Um, and showing decent relative strength. Thoughts on uh Broadcom into the print.
2: Yeah, it reminds me of Qualcomm, though, which was equally cheap. And you know, when they missed, they got punished for it. So this is my sense. I think if you've been long the name. You got to take money off the table in earnings. And if I'm wrong, you're just wrong. But, you know, the downside to me could be significant. And the upside, what are you really looking for at this point? You know, maybe another 8%. So we've seen 20% moves in semis on the back of earnings. And you could potentially see it again. Go back and look at Falcom real quick just to see what happened last quarter in a stock that was as cheap, if not cheaper, in the earnings, dam.
0: Yeah, no, I get that. And and Liz, you know, it's interesting when we think about your uh, note on the resistance. Again, can't get it out of my head. Look at the semiconductor ETF. Look at this SMH here because it is above that downtrend that's been in place over the last year. And despite the fact it's down... on the year. It's also contending with its 200-day. So that prior resistance now becomes support. And that's why I think tonight's results and guidance will be really interesting because on my final trade a few days ago on on CNBC, I also said, I think NVIDIA, which is a huge component of this SMH, it's had like a 60% runoff of its lows. And I don't think the earning revisions are done there. But then you look at this SMH and you say to yourself, It's setting up pretty nice technically, especially if it can continue to base above that downtrend.
1: Yeah, well, I think a lot of this move is that rates have come down, too. So don't discount Mm -hmm. that fact. I I would say I'm not ready for semis yet. I think if if you have to buy, if I was held up against a wall and you forced me to buy something in tech, I would buy software at this point. I still think that there's probably downside to come here and you'd get a better entry point.
0: Yeah, fair enough. All right, Liz Young, we really appreciate you being here with us on a Thursday. That's L Y. No, From sofi, she is with us every Thursday. You know, sure. and uh, you know, just just figuring out new ways to aggravate Gaia Dami with her weekly notes. So.
2: By the way, just a little a little known fact: Elizabeth's mom digs me. I'm just saying it. She might be watching right now. I'm
1: just
0: She's, married. She's married. She's but- married. I'm set not, not the point. I figured this much. All right. From one Elizabeth to another. Thanks a lot, Liz. We appreciate it. Okay, we have a special guest here, and she's been on Market Call with us before. And, you know, we wanted to do a deep dive on ETFs. Like, we just went through two single stock names, and then what did we do? We went and looked at the sector ETFs. Guy and I spent a lot of time (coughs) talking about them, trading them, and there's a lot of interesting things going on here. So, we want to bring in um, Elizabeth Kashner. She is the Director of Global Funds Research and Analytics at FactSet. Elizabeth Welcome to Market Call. We really appreciate you being here with us today.
3: It is such a pleasure. I'm really excited.
0: All right. Well, listen, you do a lot of great work over there at FactSet. I want to start by talking about, like, sometimes why is it that ETFs have this potential to be controversial in the financial space. So some people are just purists when it comes to the stock market or other asset classes. And then others are always looking for ways to make financial products more accessible, not just to professionals, but to to everyone. Talk to us a little bit about how you got into the ETF space, why you do so much work on it, and why you think it's important to fact-set clients.
3: Well, that's a great question. So I've been in the ETF space since uh, 2010 officially, but I really sort of started um, a little bit earlier in the darkest days of 2009. Uh, I'm sure you all remember right? Yes. the financial crisis. And um, at that time, I was working with um, a wealth management firm that um, had put much of its clients' money into actively managed mutual funds with the expectation that those mutual fund managers would take a, a fiduciary stance and would protect clients in a downturn, well, there was nowhere to hide. Right in two thousand and eight and two thousand and nine, and the uh, those actively managed mutual funds underperformed. Right, not only did they not get out of the market, not only did they you know ri- ride the wave down, but their security selection was uh, even worse. Yeah, and. So, you know, as an investment committee, we made the decision to get out of active management and to start to uh, act like what would later be called an ETF strategist. Yeah. Uh, but that was 2008. There were no ETF strategists then. So um, it, we, we had an investment thesis, but we didn't have any analytical tools to help understand how to enact that thesis. And so I started building some from the ground up and then when the opportunity came to join a firm that was doing nothing but ETF analytics i said bingo
0: yeah well well it's interesting i mean again you know a lot of people and investors professionals alike i mean they they there's there's you know, thousands and thousands of listed, you know, securities to trade, and sometimes basically having a nice little package that's low cost um, and and very liquid and transparent is is a great way to do it. L- let me just ask you this because I just mentioned that XLY, right? So it's the consumer discretionary ETF, and you know, three of the top holdings make up you know close to fifty percent of the weight. And I think oftentimes you'll see pundits, you know, in 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 financial media, will say well, that's not a great measure, right, of a sector. Talk talk to us about some of the criticisms about concentration within ETFs. And what is kind of your data suggest over time about those? Because I suspect that while some of those concentrations make some investors nervous, they probably track to the overall performance of that sector over a longer period of time.
3: You know, it's so interesting because you're starting to get into questions of how do you define a sector and what does it mean to invest in a sector? One thing that I think people might forget about the sector spider suites is that they're all large caps, right? They're all slicing and dicing of the S&P 500. The S&P 500 is not the total market, right? It's a a selection in large and mid caps. There's over 3,000 stocks in the whole market. And so, um, there's a lot of competition in the sector space for sector ETFs. Most of the major sectors have at least a dozen ETFs that are competing for investor attention. And so, if you want something that is a little bit less concentrated, you can go for more of a, a total market slice. Uh, there's products out there from Fidelity and Vanguard that do exactly that. And even the uh, the BlackRock products are often a lot broader based than what you see in the sector spiders, which are more trading vehicles.
0: Yeah. Well, let's talk, you brought some data with you um, about just basically where the bulk of the assets under management live in the ETF space. and would love to kind of talk a little bit about that because you just mentioned some of those kind of large cap and we know them to be really a lot of mega cap names that they're dominated by. So when you see, and you just also mentioned, it's a very competitive space. And so oftentimes, you know, ETFs will start, they have to start small, right? Like to attract assets, that sort of thing. What What are some of the biggest drivers for uh, you know a new ETF uh, aside from performance is it just is it a big marketing game here and 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 just talk to us about the life cycle of a lot of the ETFs that you track how they go from you know kind of sub you know 100 million to you know over a billion dollars in assets and then where you know you know i i assume we have the 80 20 rule working here a little bit that 80% of the assets are probably in less than 20% of the ETFs out there
3: oh yeah for sure and thank you so much for the slide Yeah, Um, You know, um, sometimes I like to uh, sort of take the position of uh, someone who's thinking about entering the ETF space and, you know, what would I want to know? And every so often I do get approached by someone, um, the quote on the top here, I'm thinking of launching an ETF business with the right marketing strategy. I could get between 500 million and a billion within three to five years. Elizabeth, I'd love to pick (laughs) your brain. Like I get pinged with this sort of thing all the time. And uh, then comes the sad part where I say, you should think twice. A lot of this this person who pinged me did not want to hear you should think twice and said, oh my gosh, I've heard so much encouragement. You're the first person who said, um, not so fast. And you know, I think one of the reasons for that is that uh, maybe people don't understand how incredibly competitive and saturated the ETF business really is right now. So um, this chart right here, I just took a look at the fate of every single ETF that's launched since SPY, which is about to be 30 years old, I'll have you know, right? And just about, about a month from now, the ETF business will be 30 years old. So, you know, not even a teenager anymore, not even a, a young adult, but like really <laughs> out there. Um over a third of ETFs that have ever launched are dead. They're closed. They're gone. They have zero assets. About another third are languishing below that $100 million mark. So the rest of the, the landscape, like moderate success between 100 and 150000000 million, you've got about 15%, about 5% getting close to a billion. And Only like 10 to 12% of the ETFs really make it big and hit over a billion.
2: Basically, not all ETFs are created equal is exactly what you're saying. and I think people, the landscape has changed so much, thousands of ETFs out there, it's confusing for people. So how how can people that are watching this, listening to this, sort of discern and find a place where they can parse through what makes sense for them and maybe doesn't make as much sense for them?
3: Well, that's a really great, great question, and that's my bread and butter, right? So um, I think you're right. I think it's very confusing. And I think, um, you know, when experts like you are throwing around tickers, well, there's the XLY and the OIH and the SMH, you know, that definitely really sort of makes it very salient to people how many choices there are out there and how hard it is to cut through the noise. So, a fact FactSet, we offer uh, an ETF classification system, and we also have ratings and rankings that assist with due diligence. So, you know, I can't really help you make that decision of do I want to be in a sector fund, do I want to be in a size and style fund, do I want to be in a broad-based fund, do I want to be in bonds, out of bonds, long, short, high quality, low quality. Once you've made that decision, though, I think you really want to know. What are all the funds that are out there that are competing with each other? And how can I start to make an intelligent call amongst them?
0: Yeah.
3: We have a ton of tools that support that.
0: Yeah. So, so here's one, you know, again, like you just mentioned the ones that we just use. It's just for us, you know, we have a limited amount of time to kind of express our ideas. And I think a lot of investors see that as the way they think about doing their, you know, analysis, whether it be fundamental, technical, and all the inputs that they use. And that's why ETFs to me, you know, you said they've been around 30 years. I've been in the business for 25. And I probably at some point 20 years ago, really started um, using them a whole heck of a lot for started out as head and I know a lot of investors, you know, professionals kind of use them for hedging purposes, but also when you just want to express in a view directionally without getting too granular. What, but to my question, Elizabeth, is that, you know, we've spent so much time and, you know, retail investors, professional investors, financial media but pundits and stuff talking about this ARK ETF. And so what is it about, it seems every cycle, and I remember going back to, remember the internet ETFs <laughs> in the late 90s and the early 2000s, and there was commodity ones that were really hot for a while. What do you think the fascination with this ARK ETF is? Is it that that the woman who runs it is out there in the media so frequently? And, and I'm just curious as your thoughts anecdotally, because you look at, Hundreds and hundreds of ETFs to do your work, but this one gets a disproportionate amount of attention.
3: And you're feeding it right now.
0: (laughs) (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Yes, Um, exactly.
3: You know, when I looked at ARKK this morning, it had returned exactly zero over the past five years. This chart is not quite as long as a horizon, but if you put money with ARKK five years ago, you just waited and went away and you came back, you would have the same number of dollars. You know, that is not necessarily the case with some of the funds that are competing with ARKK. So, you know, I think media certainly has something to do with it. I think having a charismatic leader has something to do with it. Um, You know, I have published not that long ago that we're seeing um, an increase in sort of inexplicable, irrational investor behavior. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, this year we've seen people really throwing. Good money after bad into uh, downside performance chasing, especially in some geared products like, well, I can lose money on this real quick. That would be good. (laughs) Um, So, you know, it used to be that you could look at ARKK and say, well, that performance is just mesmerizing. People can't help themselves. They want to get on that train and they see the momentum going forever. Well, the momentum has been going the other way. And over five years, there's very little to show for it from an investor point of view.
0: Yeah. Well, <laughs>
3: However, from, a, from an asset manager point of view, like it's been an incredible asset gathering vehicle.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, again, I mean, you know, the assets that thing, they keep going higher as the price and the NAV goes lower. And you just mentioned good money after bad. And, you know, the headlines that we see every day is that, you know, she keeps adding to these things and she keeps calling them innovative things, meaning these innovative companies that keep <laughs> going lower. So, again, I listen, this is this a fascinating conversation, Elizabeth. I know that you have a report coming out maybe in the next few weeks um, on ETF trends. And we hope that we get to see it first. We will definitely... Definitely plug it here on Market Call. We hope that you'll come back um, and talk with us about this. And again, you know, this is a great conversation for for Guy and myself and a lot of our viewers because we are talking about ETFs every day. They're really important um, parts in which we kind of you know express um, our thoughts on different sectors, on broad markets, on different instruments. I mean, we you know we use it for commodity-based ETFs and for um, express views as far as rates and stuff like that. So we really appreciate the work you're doing. At FactSet. We hope that you'll come back and talk to us about the report that you put out pretty soon. So thanks, Elizabeth Kashner. I really appreciate you coming and joining us.
3: Thank you both.
0: All right. Great. Thanks, Elizabeth. All right, Guy, I just want to kind of go over another friend of ours from FactSet. It's Butters. You know him. He's the senior earnings insight analyst over there at FactSet. He writes The Earnings Insight blog, it drops every Friday morning. He gives us a little bit of a preview. Um, I've been reading John's work For years here, this one's really interesting. And you were not with us last week, guy. But we, you know, John's piece was talking about how after over the last 25 years or so, that strategists modeling S and P earnings one year out on average have been about seven percent too high. Okay, and so right now we've spent a lot of time on Market Call talking about 2023 S and P estimates that are expected to be up five percent. I don't think any of us think that's really a strong likelihood. Let's just say worst case scenario, it's down. Down 7% from here, I don't think that's going to be the worst case scenario. I think that's probably the base case scenario, that overestimate, you know, like the average, and you're going to have, you know, S&P earnings that are getting closer to 200, you know what I mean, rather than the 220 that are expected right here. So again, I think both you and I think they can be down 10%. Well, butters this week, He's saying despite concerns about a recession, analysts are projecting earnings growth of 5.5% for calendar year 2023. This estimate is below the estimated growth rates of 8.2% on September 30th and 9.6% on June 30th. So they've been coming down, okay, but they're only, you know, 5.5%. Eight of 11 sectors are expecting to see growth led by consumer discretionary financials and industrials. In the consumer discretionary sector, analysts are predicting <coughs> an earnings rebound for Amazon and for companies in the hotel restaurants and leisure that is the reopening trade guy here we are on three years of covid and we're still talking about reopening so to me i think this is really interesting data let's keep an eye on those three sectors because butters has also told us over the last month where energy has been a huge contributor in 2022 right it's going to start trailing off mid-year next year and it's going to expect consumer discretionary industrials restaurants hotels that stuff to pick up some of the slack.
2: I think when I look at this, I think what it says to me, people are still optimistic or analysts are too still optimistic. And I think you're going to start seeing these numbers ratchet down. And when that happens, I think that's going to say we finally reached a level where we can start looking at stocks in a meaningful way to the upside. I just don't think we're there yet. And I, and I think it all lines up to the conversation we had with EY earlier about you know, the back half of next year could be potentially explosive to the upside. But you got to stomach, I think, the next four or five months to the downside first. And I think that will coincide with analysts throwing in the towel on the earnings front.
0: All right. Well, listen, Guy, we had um, a couple. I apologize for my audio. No, no, no. We, we we had a couple issues, but we did it. We had a couple great guests, both named Elizabeth. They spell their names differently, though, guys. So thank you to Elizabeth Young from SoFi. Thank you to Elizabeth with an S cashner from FactSet. set thanks to john butters um as always you know that's going to do it for us for market call i want to thank our sponsors FactSet set and sofi for bringing you today's show if you like what you saw, what you heard, okay? Be sure to like the video, wherever you're watching it. If you're watching it on Twitter, you're watching on the YouTube, if you're listening to this in the podcast store, your favorite podcast store, you know, throw us a subscribe, smash the like button, whatever you want to do here. Um, So we appreciate you being here. We will be back. We we'll won't be back tomorrow. Tomorrow's Friday. We're going to be back on Monday. We'll be with Carter Braxton. We're at the word charting. Guy, thanks a lot, bud. I appreciate we'll it. Be ro- yeah. We'll
2: be rocking around the resistance tree on Monday. There, yeah, you
0: go. there you go, bud. All right, we'll see you guys. Thanks for joining
3: us.